Welcome back to Across the Movie Owl, presented by the Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of the Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm hanging in there. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, Lucy Liu took to the pages of the Washington Post this week to note uh, that it takes time to move the needle on issues of representation in the movies and in Hollywood, and also ask the younger generation of critics to maybe tone it down a bit when they get up on their high horse about racism in the movies. Um, I, I'll be honest, when I was reading it, the piece felt inspired at least a little bit by a recent op-ed in Teen Vogue that, among other, th among other things, criticized Liu for playing a quote-unquote dragon lady in Kill Bill. Uh, the stereotype is defined uh, as a nation woman who is, quote, cunning and deceitful, who uses her sexuality as a powerful tool of manipulation, but often is emotionally and sexually cold and threatens masculinity, end quote. Um, this is, of course, not at all what her character in the movie is like. And as Lou put it, she, as opposed to Vivica A. Fox or Daryl Hannah or Uma Thurman, was described this way only because she is Asian. Uh, Alyssa, you worked with Mrs. Lou on this piece. I would really, I'm really interested to figure out how it came about and, and what your take on it was. So one of the fun things about working as an editor is sometimes stuff just shows up in people's email inboxes. And in this case, Lou's publicist uh, emailed one of my colleagues and was like, hey, we have this piece. Would you be interested in it? And reading the first draft, part of what was really engaging about it to me is that I had not seen someone make what in retrospect, I think is sort of an obvious and important point, which is that um, if in the hunt to you know identify stereotypes and sort of push them out of pop culture, you start saying that any character who has certain traits um, and is of a certain race is automatically you know, a representation of one of these stereotypes, then you start really narrowing down the range of human experience that certain actors can portray on film. So if you say that no Asian or Asian American female character can be deceitful or sexual, or you know, to look at an alternate set of stereotypes, um, you know, domestic or um, you know, sort of home-oriented, without playing into the stereotype of either sort of the the dragon lady or the geisha, that just shuts out Asian American actresses from representing a huge range of the human experience. Um, and it was really it was really interesting um, just spending time with her on the phone and over email, sort of working the piece to its final state. Um, and just to hear from someone at that level of the industry um, talk about sort of what feels like progress for them. Um, and I mean, I thought it was a really interesting piece and it was really interesting to get to talk to her, especially since, you know, girls of women my age, like the Charlie's Angels movies were a huge touchdown when we were sort of preteens and young adults. Um, they were, you know, sort of friendly girl oriented action movies of a kind that just doesn't get made, period. And then, you know, Kill Bill in a similar way, you know, I mean, I don't think of Quentin Tarantino as someone who makes like women's movies or movies for girls. But to have a pair of movies that is about these sort of complex female relationships and how they're influenced by a powerful man is actually like a really interesting, rare thing to get to see in pop culture. And so getting to hear from her about both the experience of playing those characters um, and then the sort of long tail reception of them um, was, was really interesting. Uh, Peter, what was your favorite moment in the Charlie's Angels movies as a young woman growing up? Your... <laughs> no, I, I, so I, I unironically love those movies. Um, in particular, I think the first one uh, is is just like a surprisingly good film. Every time I watch it, I'm like, 
it, it's not like sure it's it's kind of pop candy but it's actually really really well made pop candy it's like nice to look at the action scenes are um, are actually really well staged. I think the second one is not quite as good, though it's kind of like um, uh, it's self-aware in a way that I, that is that is super smart. Um, look, those uh, those movies are are showcases for all of the actresses, uh, but they're in some ways they're if there's a if there's a a supporting character who steals some of the scenes, it's every time Crispin Glover shows up in those movies, right? It's that, that he is just sort of like, oh my goodness, what is Crispin Glover doing here? And he just plays this like completely bizarre character um, and makes him not not real in like a emotionally like, oh, this is like, this is like an Academy Award winning kind of, no, what he does is he turns him into a super interesting cartoon character. And actually that's kind of the thing that the Charlie's Angels movies do really well is they accept this is not going to be like a, this is not going to be a film about like a, a deeply realistic emotional experience that anybody's ever going to have in real life. What it is, is it's going to be a really fun kind of cartoon romp uh, that also is, that takes itself seriously is the wrong way to put it. Um, that is quite serious about finding the fun and about exploiting all of the kind of the, the conceptual um, uh, material, right? Like they, they take, they take the ideas in that film uh, in, in the, both of those films, every time they have an idea, they take it to its logical conclusion in a way that's really fun and really interesting. Um, and it's a great trio, uh, you know, of of actresses, uh, including Lou there. Um, yeah, I think those films are seriously underra underrated. I loved them when they came out, and I think people have uh, forgotten about them. Uh, maybe not forgotten, but I think they have they don't get the attention that they probably actually deserve at this point. Yeah. Uh, so, Alyssa, I, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, the the kind of most interesting idea here, again, to to, to drill down on this a little more is the um, the idea of what progress actually looks like uh, from from the perspective of a progressive activist versus a an actual actress who has who has to work within this system. I mean, how how, uh, you know, as you're working with her to kind of shape this piece, how did you help balance those two ideas? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I this was not a piece where, you know, there are some opinion pieces that are just straight arguments, right? And this is a more impressionistic piece than a lot of the ones that we run in the opinion section. And, you know, it can stand as an argument piece because of the stature of the person writing it, um, which I think is not something people who are pitching opinion sections kind of inherently understand. Um, but it, it was also, I mean, as someone who writes on the sort of more progressive end of the criticism spectrum, it was, I kind of viewed it as just sort of a, almost a repertorial experience for me. Um, I'm not trying to get her to argue with the author of that Teen Vogue piece or even necessarily with an entire school of critics. What I am trying to do is, as, an, as her editor, is sort of hear her and make sure that our readers hear what it's like to be on the end of that sort of criticism, what it is to try and find your role in Hollywood as someone who grew up without a lot of these role models. I mean, I thought there's a really interesting line early in the piece about how the person she most resonated to on TV growing up is this actress, Ann Miyamoto, um, who is most famous for being in a Calgon commercial where she, she plays half of a married couple who work in a Chinese laundry. And her husband is sort of out front selling the customers on the idea that, like, there's some, like, ancient Chinese secret that goes into the laundry they're doing 
um, that makes like makes them a better laundromat, that, that makes them a better dry cleaner than everyone else. And Miyamoto's character pops up and is like, it's not an ancient Chinese secret, it's Calgon. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that like would feel really ephemeral to a lot of white people watching that commercial. Um, critics today might even look at the sort of invocation of the like ancient Chinese secret, which I'm putting in air quotes, and see a stereotype. But what Lou saw was someone who was bucking that stereotype was in a commercial that was about how people, about how Asian Americans or Asian immigrants navigate sort of white perceptions of them. Um, and so just the opportunity to kind of see through her eyes as opposed to trying to make her fit neatly into a pre-existing conversation about criticism and stereotypes was, I mean, I think for me, the most interesting thing about getting to work on it. Uh, before we uh, go on to, the, to whatever we're going to talk about next, I just want to go back and revise my favorite single moment. It's not just Crispin Glover. It's actually, I just, re I just realized it's Lucy Liu who says my favorite line in both of the, in either of those films. And it's, flip your goddamn hair and it's like there's such a like a a, a crazily memorable uh, rhythm to the way she says it i think about that line all the time and in some ways like it's now just sort of off in the ether as like a charlie's angels line but no it's lucy lou and it's lucy lou who said it perfectly in a way that like makes me think oh yeah man if i had long hair i could flip i would just flip the shit out of my hair right now um she's she's great in it and like that line actually sticks out um to me and like i, I think about it a lot uh what do we so what what is the uh kind of takeaway from her column do we think what what is is it is it aimed at here's here's i guess what i'm what i'm most curious about do we think that this is aimed at Hollywood? Do we think it is aimed at viewers or do we think it is aimed at critics? Because I think the piece is doing three different things depending on who the specific target audience is. So, I, I mean, Alyssa can speak to the the question of who it is aimed at, but I will just say that for me, the clearest takeaway from the piece was that this uh, that it serves as, a, 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 I think, a useful and correct um, response, not only to a specific piece of criticism, which is the uh, the piece in Teen Vogue, but to I think an entire school of criticism that flourishes online right now and that kind of uses uses racial readings of film as a crutch and sees everything through that lens but doesn't go any further. It doesn't really consider the underlying work and it's kind of lazy at times. But what she points out, I think correctly, is that it actually, in its own way, it perpetuates stereotypes rather than puncturing them. Right? Because this race-centric form of criticism sees Oren Ishii not as a character, not as an individual, not as a product of an actor and a director and a screenwriter, but just as a racial character caricature first in a way that isn't true, that is sort of just like robs her of, of anything that's interesting, right? And, and it has decided to, to see her that way. And it doesn't see the other characters, the other assassins that way, because it, it sees her first and foremost through the lens of race. And I think that's a really perceptive uh, a criticism of, again, not just that specific piece, but of a, a school of, and style of criticism that has flourished online recently. Yeah, and I would say I didn't read the piece or in my conversations with Lou, read her as like taking on a you know, school of criticism in a particular way, but saying, you know, this is an ongoing fight, you know, this is what it's like to live in this work and try and find roles and make them human and to try and sort of be a person and to let my characters be people inside this sort of 200 year long conversation about who we're supposed to be. Um, 
And I just thought the human element of that was the most important and interesting thing for me, even as someone who has interviewed a lot of actors and, you know, written in this school of criticism, although hopefully better than that Teen Vogue piece. Um, but just to say, you know, there are always people behind these depictions. And um, assuming that they are sort of simple participants in a wide-ranging system um, rather than people who are trying to find their own sort of distinct and human way within it um, is a mistake from sort of a critical perspective, but also a mistake from a human perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really do. It's it was a it was a really interesting piece to read. And I'll link to it in the 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 email uh, slash body copy that this podcast goes out with because I think people should read it because it really is. I mean, look, I think it's it's hard. Being an actress or an actor is one of the hardest jobs in the world just in terms of getting roles, getting your foot in the door and that sort of thing. Anyway, and then and then on top of that, when you have this like kind of cadre of people who are like, well, you can't take this role because it's, you know, portrays a bad image or you can't take that role because it portrays a bad image. I, I It's it's like a double handicap in a way um, that I think is uh, that is unfair, frankly, to the the actor's and actresses involved. Also, um, like half of that criticism ends up being kind of retroactive. You take the role and then after you've already done it, uh, sometimes years later, it's that somebody has decided that the thing you did was unacceptable or yeah. perpetuated a, a stereotype that not to, not to say that, you know, the the Asian stereotypes didn't exist, you know, five or 10 or 15 years ago, um, but that like the conversation around these things shifts and often it is it is just it is a retroactive criticism that is lobbed at somebody um, and it becomes kind of not useful as a result and one thing i just wanted to add to this in conversations with lou and a couple of other writers i was working with on pieces about the oscars you know one thing that i think is percolating is there's been this big wave of um sort of asian representation in cinema this year um you know you have a bunch of nominations for minari you have chloe Zhao winning best director and nomad land winning best picture um, and I think there's been a tendency to conflate um, Asian and Asian American representation when, in fact, um, those experiences are not identical um, and the perspectives are not the same. It's not just that Asian is an incredibly reductive term for a couple of billion people that um, who have you know wildly different cultural traditions, histories, languages, religious practices. But you know the experience of growing up kind of enmeshed in, the Asian American experience and growing up, you know, in a wealthy family in China or a, you know, a um, family in Vietnam, there's just wildly different experiences. And so, you know, we, when we talk about representation in pop culture, you know, talking about sort of the black American experience, I think like people understand that that's not a synecdoche for representations of people who live in African countries, but there has been a tendency, especially in this Oscar season to treat Asian and Asian American representations as if they're interchangeable when they're really not. Um, and I am grateful to the writers, including Lou, who helped me think about that um, in a way that I hope will be more nuanced in my own writing and commissioning going forward. Yeah. Uh, you can just, if you just Google Lucy Liu in Washington Post, it's like the first thing that pops up. So just FYI, if you don't, if you don't want to read the, the, the email that I sent out with this 
uh, wonderful podcast that that's a good way to find it uh, all right uh, so let's let's move on um, if you enjoy the show and who doesn't it's great make sure to head, head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we'll have a special members only bonus episode looking uh, ahead to better times with the MCU's return to theaters we're gonna be talking about the MCU's rollout of their slate of films they announced something like seven million movies uh, this 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 day and they had a they had a nice little trailer style video out with crowd reactions at Avengers movies and a tear-jerking uh, voiceover from Stan Lee, the dearly departed Stan Lee. Uh, so we'll be talking about that and and kind of what uh, what Marvel and Disney's actual endgame here is with theaters because I will be honest, a little bit more skeptical uh, I am than, than that uh, video probably wants us to be. So head over to atma.thebulwark.com. We'll get you that special episode. All right, and now on to the main event. Without remorse, Paramount and Amazon's latest attempt to mine the bibliography of Tom Clancy in the hopes of coming up with a new great franchise. Without remorse stars Michael B. Jordan as John Clark, a Navy SEAL whose team is tricked by the CIA into attacking a Russian safe house in Aleppo during the Syrian Civil War. Uh, after coming home, members of Clark's team are killed by a team of Russians, as is Clark's very, very pregnant wife. Clark's very pregnant wife dies, as does their unborn child, and Clark decides to get revenge by figuring out who set them up, why, and how best to kill them without, well, you know. Uh, what the trailers promised was something like John Wick by way of Jack Ryan, an espionage thriller written by the great Taylor Sheridan uh, that featured an unstoppable killing machine wreaking vengeance in re in the response to the death of a loved one. Um, and what we got was something much more boring than that. As I noted in my review, it's not just that Without Remorse is predictable, though the film is that. It's not just that the script from Sheridan and Will Staples is a reheated mishmash of well-worn agitprop about the military-industrial complex's various iniquities, though it is that. Uh, and it's not just that Michael B. Jordan doesn't quite sell the grief-wracked John, or that I don't quite buy former model Jody Turner-Smith as the leader of a SEAL team, though he cannot, and I do not. Uh, the biggest issue with this movie is that it's just incredibly visually dull, and there's one really decent set piece in the middle of the movie that involves a plane crash in the ocean and an effort to rescue some gear for the mission before it seeks to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, other than that, the whole thing is flat, rote. The fights are cut rather than choreographed. It just, it, it just feels blah. Blah. That is how I would describe it. Um, and if it's a movie that feels like a TV show, well, there's a reason for that. Uh, director Stefano Salimo, uh, who also directed the visually underwhelming Sicario sequel, Day of the Soldado, is an Italian director of TV shows. I don't know. I try to find something positive about every movie, um, but I just have nothing particularly good to say about this picture. Uh, Peter, judging from your review, you seem to like Jordan in this, despite the fact that he is actually not very good in it. What am I missing? Prove me wrong. Yeah, I think prove you're my, wrong on this. I mean, like me the, the best moment in the movie to me was um, there is a brief interlude that makes really not very much sense in the overall context of the story and just sort of seems to be there because um, they wanted Michael B. Jordan's character first to kill a Russian diplomat. And then they had to like, they had to kind of have some consequences in there. So he ends up in jail for like eight minutes of the movie. And, and in the jail sequence, uh, he ends up fighting off like a battalion of SWAT armored, uh, you know, jail police. And the warm up to that is the best moment in the movie. Because the director isn't really doing anything. The, the screenwriters aren't trying to do anything. There's no sort of storytelling happening. There's just Michael B. Jordan 
and his incredible physical presence, trying to pump as much energy into himself and the character and the scene as possible. And for about two minutes, as he just strips down and like uh, uh, creates like boxing gloves on his knuckles so that he, you know, to, to protect his hands because he knows he's about to go through some really, uh, through like, again, through a whole bunch of armored police, um, and, you know, and, and like rips, comes very close to like ripping the, um, uh, the sink off of the wall, right? Eventually it does get ripped off the wall when some of the, the cops come in. For about two minutes, the movie is great to watch because Michael B. Jordan is just a great screen presence who has an incredible physical persona, right? You don't, he doesn't even need to, it's not that he's, that he necessarily uh, delivers these bad lines. The movie is so filled with bad dialogue. Um, it's not that he never necessarily delivers the bad dialogue well. What he does is he takes up the screen and kind of and kind of owns it in a way that a, that a an action star needs to. Um, and so every one of those moments where the movie just stops and lingers on the on him um, works well enough just because he's so good. It's the the problems all start whenever the movie tries to do anything with the story with the characters because the director and the screenwriters here just have no idea this story is a total mess and the as you said the direction is just flat and listless throughout these are about the most unexciting action scenes i have seen all year and this has been a year with not very many great action scenes uh i'm going to i'm going to have to disagree with you on michael b jordan here because he's undoubtedly like jacked it's like not looking just at him, he's jacked. He's, no, it's literally just that he's jacked. He's like he doesn't he doesn't really have like a huge persona. He doesn't like he doesn't. I I I like Michael B. Jordan. I like him a lot in uh in Black Panther. He's great as Killmonger. I like him in the Creed movies, though. The like he's 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 a little little bland in that. But like fine, it's wow, fine. He's that's like a perfect. Wrong. He's, he's really he's not bland in. He's Creed. fine. He's fine. He's fine. He's totally fine. Um, but the but in this movie, he's just like. He's just big. That's like the he's just he is just big in a way that like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone were big in the 1980s. Like like in terms of he's got muscles and then there's some muscles on the muscles and like that's not enough, man. That's not enough these days. Like I I need a little more I need a little more personality. I need a little more a little more charisma and he just does not have it in this movie. Alyssa, am I underselling the muscles? Um I'm just going to say that this movie may be called without remorse, but I have a lot of remorse for the oh. two hours that I lost to watching it. Sorry. Burn! Without um, remorse, the movie. So Same. I I feel like this movie made me... It forced to the fore a question that I have been avoiding uh, contemplating seriously, which is what is going on with Michael B. Jordan's career? Um, I So I assume neither of you were regular watchers of Parenthood, but he was very good on that. Um he is wonderful in Fruitvale Station. His um, his first collaboration with Ryan Coogler, with whom he worked on the Creed movies and Black Panther, um, and he has not quite had the career I thought he was going to have, or sort of expected him to have. And maybe that will change in the next couple of years. Um, he and Coogler have teamed up for an adaptation of a New Yorker article about the um, Atlanta standardized test. Um, cheating scandal which should be like a good meaty role for him but the idea like I there were there were a couple years when I thought Michael B. Jordan was going to be sort of one of the most promising actors of his generation and I feel like that has just not 
quite come to pass. And this just total mediocrity of this. Just like, how did he end up in a really badly written, horribly directed, you know, direct to Amazon movie that like, I just, I I am confused about what's going on there. Um, and so this theor- wasn't originally direct yeah. to Amazon. It, it was supposed to be released theatrically last uh, September. It's, uh, but it's better on Amazon than it would have been in a theater. And yeah. Amazon picked it up in as part of the great sell-off of kind of mid-budget sure. movies that, that just weren't ever going to make it to the theater. But even, I mean, even aside, like, okay, the pandemic happened and this is direct to Amazon. It's just, it's awful. And he's not very good in it. Um, yeah across the board and i mean the the dialogue in this movie is horrible i was taking notes but like seriously this movie has lines like we served a country that didn't love us back because we believed in what it could be we believed in what america could be but they crossed a line i mean are you kidding me like what about uh, no, my, my favorite is the terrible, terrible chess analogy. Yeah. That, you know, set it sets up really by having him looking at a chess board with a little girl and he like makes a movie. He's like, look at me. I can, the, I can play chess. They're going to play by almost. my rules now. I'll show them and, what a pawn and can do to a king. And, and then he's like, I thought a pawn could kill a king, but I was wrong. And I was like, no, no, a, a pawn can kill, kill a king. king. <laughs> that That is how chess works. That's literally how chess works. Any any piece can take any piece. Um, and, and I was, I was actually, well, I was complaining about this on, on Twitter to chess people and none of them, uh, seemed as annoyed by it as me, which annoyed me even further. Probably just means that chess people are not watching without remorse, but like, it's real bad. And I, I went through a period where I read a bunch of Tom Clancy novels. Um, and this movie definitely reminded me just like how weird Tom Clancy's worldview is. Um, but this movie, but this movie's nothing like the book. Apparently this, I've not read the book. It is not. It's true. Um, I mean. But it, it's just, the sort of like total paranoia of it is just kind of, it's like almost funny. It feels sort of anachronistic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, I get that, you know, like everyone wants to play Jack Ryan in their generation. Like the Cold War had a powerful hold on people. But like this movie, just like as paranoid thrillers go, seems really silly. Um, and sh- I mean, in addition to making me question Michael B. Jordan, it makes me question Tyler, you know, Taylor Sheridan because this script is awful. Well, he uh, rewrote uh, what was uh, he rewrote a script that actually started with uh, Akiva Goldsman, um, and who doesn't have a credit uh, on the screenplay here, but I believe is still listed in one of the producer tranches. Um, I, I could be mistaken about that. The uh, other the other so. writer is a video um, game writer. Yeah, so. but it's still awful, right? I mean, I, I, mean, I, yeah. I think it was just look. I I think it was. Uh, it was a it was doomed um, from the beginning, and and Taylor Sheridan may not have uh, been able to do much with. But there, the there is not a good or memorable line in this entire yeah. movie. I agree with that. I, so what about I, Guy I think... Pierce's what about Guy Pierce's <laughs> gurgled monologue at the end about you know how we needed to have an enemy and nothing no no enemy was as big as Russia during the Cold War so, and that's what the military industrial complex is good for. Yeah, it's making jobs. We gotta we gotta make all the jobs, people. So. Um, I will say I it's not a good line, but it is at least a little bit memorable, you know, when he says, you know, who won World War Two, it wasn't the general generals or the admirals, it was the economists. And then he explains that like it was Keynesian stimulus that like brought us out of the recession. This is not really true. It's a popular myth, but it is like telling, you know, it's Reason like the one thing weighing in. It's the one thing, right? That like uh that the movie sort of gets kind of right is that some DC bureaucrat dipshit would believe that and try to start a war based on a completely 
a historical understanding of World War II economics. Um, I, I do, you know, to bring it back to Jordan, who I will continue to defend here, the thing that he did, that he does consistently badly is that outside of Ryan Coogler, uh, he doesn't pick good directors and good projects. And if you look at, um, you know, his he was in Fantastic Four in 2015, uh, the, the Josh Trank version of it that was just an utter, utter, utter disaster from the beginning. I mean, that whole that production is a, is one of the most troubled productions of the last decade in Hollywood. And the movie is is maybe the worst superhero movie of the modern era. Um, and he he signed on to it thinking that he was going to get himself involved in a new fr Fantastic Four franchise. And he did clearly did the same thing here. Like one of the craziest and dumbest elements of this movie is that there is a post credit scene that teases a sequel as if anyone like a rainbow six as if any, yeah. yeah i yeah. believe this is supposed to be a diptych with rainbow six and there's no yeah. way that this crew is going to be brought back for a sequel and yet everybody involved thought that this was going to be a movie that was going to launch a franchise and it's just a completely crazy idea that jordan clearly brought it bought into and i think he just he doesn't seem to be somebody who it's maybe it's his representatives maybe it's his particular taste maybe it's just the choice of roles that hollywood is offering to him but outside of his work with ryan coogler who i think is a really excellent director and writer and who seems to know how to how to sort of give michael b jordan the roles that he that excels in uh jordan is not picking directors and projects that are that are clearly going to go anywhere and i think this time, you know, it's one thing to go with with Josh Trank and Fantastic Four after Josh Trank uh, is when he is a hot young director and when Made Fantastic Chronicle, Four yeah. is a is a sort of big thing, you know, in, that's in the works. But there's no reason to think that the Day of the Soldado guy is going to do a great uh, Tom Clancy movie. There's just no reason at all. Another another Taylor Sheridan written movie, by the way. Uh, which is, I, so I, I, can I, can I, can I, uh, talk about something I didn't really talk about in my review is I didn't, I didn't have room to, and I don't know the character well enough to say one way or the other, whether or not this characterization makes sense. But when we have seen this character pop up in other venues, when he is, uh, played by Liev Schreiber in Some of All Fears, I believe it's the same character, right? Um, and when he is played by, uh, Willem Dafoe in, uh, Clear and Present Danger, the character is much sneakier than Michael B. Jordan is in this movie. He's like a, he's like a, you know, he's like an actual, you know, kind of like slip in behind the scenes, knife a guy, get out sort of character. And in this, he's just like, I'm going to shoot everyone. I'm going to shoot lots. I'm going to go up to the roof of this uh, Russian apartment building and I'm going to shoot everyone in the Russian police department to escape and help my, my friends get out of, get out of harm's way. And I just think I, I, I don't, I don't. I, I, it doesn't, it, it just, there's no tension to it. I mean, it's like, I, I mentioned John Wick earlier because I, I like the idea of like this kind of, you know, uh, unstoppable killing machine who also like has some fluidity and motion to it. And there's none of that here. There's just, there's just shooting. It's like cutting and shooting and cutting and shooting. He does and have the shooting. plan to, uh, to take a, a tow truck and drive it into the car at Dallas. Uh, also don't. Also, don't forget that's not it. But that's not that's not sneaky at all. He like drives the tow truck in there and then he pours gasoline all over the car and lights it on fire and jumps into the car. He's like, all right, now I'm going to shoot you. I like it's just the whole thing. He, he also is really good at holding his breath underwater so he can drown people, which means we need like three set pieces establishing that he's really good at holding his breath. Yeah. 
I will say that the the airplane sequence was pretty good. I thought that was I thought that was well done. It's the only thing in the movie where I was like, oh, this is actually kind of tense. The lighting in the movie is also just garbage, right? I mean, there's been sort of an ongoing conversation about how to light black actors effectively so they can be seen like <laughs> and beyond looking good so they can be seen. And this movie is a huge offender in that category, not least because Jodie Turner-Smith is one of the reasons that she's striking is that her skin is quite dark compared to most of the black actresses that you see in American films. And she's literally just like not visible at certain points in the movie. Well, she's also just tiny. She's like bird-sized. And like, again, like asking her to be a, a Navy SEAL in this movie, I just like, I couldn't. I, I rarely have this problem, uh, but I, I just couldn't I couldn't do it. it. There are so many things that are wrong with it. I don't know. I, 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 I again, I try to say something. I try to find something positive to say about every movie. And I guess the best I can do is like that airplane sequence wasn't terrible. I didn't love it. Well, you like the wrong thing about this movie, Michael B. Jordan, who's not good in it, as Alyssa and I have explained to you. Can we just so. can we talk, though, about how like what the world really needs is like the weird Tom Clancy adaptations. Like, let's straight up do an adaptation of the bear, like a miniseries adaptation of the bear and the dragon where Tom Clancy is convinced that like Chinese atrocities would actually convince like a world, like produce a worldwide consumer boycott and like policy would change. And also that like Catholic bishops are the key to everything. Like let's get some weird Tom Clancy adaptations that are targeted at like me and the Brunigs. Um, I would be into that. <laughs> well, there's clear and present danger, which like has as an idea at the end of it that people would care if the president ordered, you know, the killing of a bunch of drug lords in South America. He'd probably win re-election by thirty points. It's I mean it's like, it's really funny the extent to which you look back at Tom Clancy and he seems simultaneously paranoid and like incredibly naive about American policy. It's like I mean, his just his consistent belief that like people would care about things, like <laughs> No. Yeah. Not. And at granted, all. he was writing in a different time when when kind of discourse around politics and in particular national security was very different. And also, he was and captured is too strong a word, but he was uh, especially towards the later part of his career pretty influenced by the act the perceptions within the actual national security industrial complex. Right. Like of he, course. He communicated with and consulted with you know, uh, CIA and, and, and military uh, folks. And they had, they shared some of these. I, I won't say that he was simply an avatar or, or, or just a funnel for, for you know, the, the NSA, CIA, uh, Pentagon view of the world, but he definitely drew from that and he was influenced by it. Um, and it was different. They're, the way they, they thought about public opinion and the way they interacted with it was just really different in the 1980s and the 1990s, in part because the political situation was different, but also because the media environment was very different, where they weren't sort of constantly having like the, the Department of Defense wasn't just out there arguing with idiots on Twitter all day. Not yeah. that that's exactly what DOD is doing, but they're much closer to it now than, you know, in 1996. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Without Remorse? Peter? Uh, you will be surprised to find that I hated this movie. Thumbs down. Alyssa? Ugh, kill it with fire. Thumbs down, indeed. That's three thumbs downs. Uh, that is it for today's show. Uh, if you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on the MCU and all the great, great things that they're going to be doing in the next uh, year or 17. 
here coming up. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>